What's up, everyone? Welcome to Making the Shift. Where we listen to autistic voices, explore new therapy ideas, and share neurodiversity-affirming methods and strengths-based approaches to support autistic kids. Because we're not here to try and, quote, fix kids. We are here to love them, embrace them, and celebrate them for who they are. I'm Jesse Ginsberg, sensory integration trained SLP, founder of a top-rated speech therapy clinic in Los Angeles, and creator of the Inside Out Sensory Certificate for SLPs. And I'm Chris Winger, also known as Speech Dude, high school SLP and creator of the Dynamic Assessment for Social-Emotional Learning. Are you ready to make the shift? Let's do it. everyone sorry for we had a little tech issue we thought we were streaming to you and we were streaming elsewhere so good times we've had to bounce around we've had to uh try to figure out our background and that didn't work either so bear with us <laughs> as we um have this uh professionalism here going with our with our background we're fine with that but what we're going to do is we're going to jump right into the topic um that we were talking about um, yes, to ourselves, to ourselves on a dead live stream. <laughs> we were like, hmm, there's not really many people here. What's going on? What happened? Good times. Anyway, yes, tonight we wanted to talk all about how to gather data when we observe kids that is neurodiversity affirming. And I think this topic is not only important for therapists, but for parents to understand as well, right? Right, absolutely. This is like an extremely important topic. Mm -hmm. This is actually the topic where sometimes if we base information on what we knew in the past, we might be observing the wrong things. And that's what we wanted to talk about tonight is what are some of the things that we should be observing? Yeah, because right now, basically, like any checklist when we're assessing kids is all based on neurotypical norms. Yeah, absolutely. So it's just this idea that it is really not fair to judge our autistic students based off of norms of a different neurotype. Right. Absolutely. But unfortunately, and fortunately, I'm going to say unfortunately, 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 the forms that we're given as professionals, um, sometimes parents are given these forms as well. The language and the things that we're supposed to be observing are not the right things because it comes from a deficit-based model. It comes from historically, um, what students can't do. And it doesn't take into consideration that autism is a different neurotype. It doesn't take into consideration, you know, neurodivergent minds. Yeah. And look, Lucy just wrote in the chat, parents get very sad after these assessments. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's like I were to test you, I don't know, we'll see where I'm going with this analogy, but it's like if I were to say, okay, now I'm going to have you do pole vaulting. Let's see how high you can jump. And you're like, but I am not a pole vaulter and I've never trained for this in my life. Right. That? I like that. Or how about this? How about saying, you know what? Um, we know that you're left-handed, but what we're going to do is we're going to give you a test and everything that you do with your agility, your physical movements, your writing has to be with your right hand. And then we're going to compare how you did. And then we're going to force you to become right-handed because, hey, you're left-handed. That's not okay. So it's kind of like that concept, that analogy. We do, we got to get away from the thinking of we've, we're, we're 
to turning autistic students into neurotypical students because that's just not an okay model. But that's how the language is written. So let me give you some examples of very common or very common questions that are asked in some of these forms, some for parents, but a lot of them for the professionals as well. Um, so if I am doing an assessment at school on the campus, oftentimes the therapist would go out and observe the student, maybe in an unstructured setting, or the school psychologist would observe the student in the classroom. And the forms that we get, the language that's in them are things that will say things like this. Is the student making eye contact with the others in the group, right? We're already setting ourselves up for failure because we know that research shows that one of the characteristics of being autistic is not making eye contact all that often or more comfortable communicating without making eye contact. Again, that's not for everyone, buddy, but um, we do know that the research says that, hey, forcing eye contact leads to increased levels of stress. So we don't want that to become part of our observation. Another one would be, is the student using humor in conversation, right? Like that is something that we should not be collecting data on, but that's what's on our data forms. That's what's on our data sheets. So we got to start thinking about what are some of the things that we need to observe? Because right now that system is not really um, effective for our students. And I, you want me to give you some more examples? Give me more so examples. I have an assessment pulled up right here too. Um, here are some, like you said, maintaining eye contact is again, a checklist. Um, maintaining topics using typical responses like head nodding or saying hmm okay we have we have had so many conversations with kids who have been taught to do that i can think of kids who you say something and they're like hmm or something right yeah yeah, yeah. like that is definitely something that a lot of kids are then taught um avoiding use of repetitive or redundant information which we know that um one autistic communication style is what's called info dumping, which is when a person likes sharing a lot of information on a specific topic. So it's basically like saying, oh, well, um, you can't give us all of that information because it's not appropriate. It's not how neurotypical people communicate. Um, so you can't, you know, it's like saying yeah, it's not yeah, yeah. honoring their communication style. This is going to be a topic for a future show because there's a lot to talk about, but I just wanted to briefly mention the there, and you can Google this too, diversity and social intelligence. And there's some research behind it, which is when you put autistic people around autistic people, the communication, the socializing, the humor, the body, all of that is in sync with each other. And there is no difficulties or challenges. That's something that we can explore in a future episode. But I wanted to mention that because we are, if we're using these forms um, and observing the wrong stuff, all we're doing is observing an autistic student and comparing them to their typical peers. And that's just the wrong way to go, um, as I mentioned earlier. But yeah, Jesse provided those examples as well. And the other thing to think about is what are some things that we should be observing specific to um, Jesse's uh, really uh, knowledgeable in the area of sensory needs, we would want to be observing what situations, what events, and what um, things um, may a student be regulated in versus dysregulated. Right. So when we're observing the child, if we were using 
a checklist like that and the child was dysregulated, you're not going to see any of those skills because we don't see engagement, communication, and all of that when kids are dysregulated or when people are dysregulated. So it's less about are they doing the things, like are the are you seeing the behaviors, and more about what is going on maybe in the environment that is causing the child to be dysregulated. So back to our prior episode on behaviors and why to stop targeting behaviors and what to do instead, we talked about how it's kind of like the tip of the iceberg where the behavior is what you see. And then the whole big part of the iceberg is what lies beneath, which is why that is happening. And just looking at all the different things that are in the environment that might be causing that child to be dysregulated. And then another thing to look for would be if they are dysregulated, are they able to then ask for what they need in order to be accommodated? And that is another thing we've we've talked about, which is a huge um, area that we could work on, the self-advocacy piece, right? Yeah, and I think that it's almost even, I know one of the things we always talk about is when we observe kids, are they self-advocating? Because that's like one of the ultimate goals. So are they able to use their self-advocacy skills to get what they need? But it's almost like an unfair comparison in itself to look at that because so many of these kids have not been taught how to do that. They haven't been taught in the sensory realm what kind of they haven't been taught anything about their sensory system and being able to understand it. They haven't been taught about what modifications or what accommodations are available to them. And they haven't been taught how to advocate for themselves. So it's like we've got so much we can work on just in that area. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. And when we mention self-advocacy, that is kind of an umbrella term for a lot of ways of advocating. So self-advocacy can be um, seeing if a student is going through the cafeteria line on their own and getting food, or if someone's getting close to them and them saying no, like self-advocacy includes saying no. Self-advocacy includes using any form of communication. So maybe they are using their cell phone to communicate a message or they're writing down something to communicate a support or accommodation in class. Like all of those things are accepting of neurodiversity. So, Oh my gosh, are- remember when um, I was so worried when Connor, our six-year-old, I guess he was five, but he started going to kindergarten and he would come home and he's just a really like sensitive kid, like not, doesn't often speak up for himself. And he would come home and say he didn't like go to the bathroom all day, remember? And I was like, okay, well, he's just too nervous to ask the teacher to go. So remember we talked oh, yeah. about like putting a card in only SLP parents would do this. Like how <laughs> obnoxious are we? We talked about putting a card in his backpack that said, I have to go to the bathroom or something so that he could then just present it to her, um, which ended up getting a lot better and was not an issue for long. But I remember we were like, how can we figure out a different solution here? Because just having him go up and ask isn't working. Right. Absolutely. I think that's an important thing too when collecting data, getting the student or client input if possible. Like I work with older students, so it's a little bit different. Um, but yeah, finding out, you know, what would best help you in the school setting? What would best help you in your classes? And then from there, we would build the supports and accommodations. And then from knowing what the supports and accommodations are, we 
gradually work towards advocating for those supports. And again, it can be communicated just like Jesse had mentioned, um, you know, something on a card where the child doesn't have to use their voice. They can do it discreetly before or after class or in the private practice setting. Um, those are some skills that could be aligned with yeah. some of the goals, you know. So I wonder if we have other examples of if what not to look for, we're talking a lot about. So like, what is something to look for? Yeah. So another thing I'll give you specific examples. What I'm, when I'm observing, um, let's say I'm observing an unstructured, an unstructured setting, um, such as lunchtime, I'm finding out that transition because we know that transitions can be hard when the bell rings, there's going to be a lot of students moving from one spot to the next spot. I'm on a big campus, so there are herds of kids. So I'm wondering, you know, how is this student navigating from their lunch spot to their classroom? That lets me know, are they finding a way to get away from the big halls with the big um, loud noises and the large crowds? Or is that becoming a difficult thing where they're holding off and staying back while everybody gets to class and then they're the last one to class? These are some things I'm just kind of like observing. So that way I can find out what the needs are. And that way I can really help support the kid and advocate for what accommodations are needed. And that's what I can work with um, for the student. So yeah, that's a big one as well. Yeah. And that just makes me think about like, you're essentially looking at their independence, would you say in a way? Yeah. Autonomy and independence. So the autonomy part is really finding out if they're making their own choices while observing again, like the cafeteria line, or maybe at PE, I'm finding out because PE, I could get a lot of the physical education I'm at school. I can get a lot of information in PE of how the student does with, you know, making choices with what group they are going to be in or if the teacher's helping them out. I can make um, some observations with how that looks within a larger class. Like <laughs> the PE classes over here in California are, I think, capped out at 55 students. That's a lot of students in a PE class. Um, so I can get a lot of good information from there. That is crazy. That's like half of the size of my graduating class. I think that's like as many players that are, are on the Rams or something. <laughs> it's like a football that's team's crazy. Word. You can't, you could definitely hide away in the bleachers in a size, a classroom size that big. Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> well, then imagine like that transition there. I can observe with like the transition from the field up to, you know, the locker rooms. And there's a silent time because the bell schedule is different for a PE class. So there's like a seven minute warning bell so they can get ready. Um, and that can present a challenge too, because, you know, the locker room has a hundred, you know, all of the classes together, everyone having to change back into their clothes and then um, stand outside by the gate. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Yeah. So that's the other thing that we can observe too, is like um, the ability to solve a problem. And really gives us an idea of, we know that there's more than one way to solve a problem. So if a problem arises in that environment or during that observational period, we can look and see if there's additional support that's needed to solve that problem. Yeah, I was going to say problem solving, huge. What about observing their emotional regulation? Right, right, right. Emotional regulation, um, sensory needs. Um, but... Yeah. So we've kind of talked about kind of both ends of things, like what we wouldn't want to really look at versus what we are 
looking at too, except neurodiversity. We know because if you know the characteristics and we know that um, that um, autistic characteristics, it's, uh, autism is a different neurotype, then we also know that we shouldn't be looking at things like tone of voice or you know body being in the group or if we see stimming, like hand flapping and things, we know that's just characteristic. Those are things that we shouldn't really be observing because if we're observing that stuff and writing it in our reports, then what's gonna happen is it's going to drive a goal to try to suppress that stuff. And that's the harm, that's what we don't want. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, I think the bigger issue is not just in the observation, it's what comes from the observation, which is a report, like one of our commenters said, makes parents really sad. Because right. all of a sudden we're comparing their child to people who the tests weren't designed for in the first place. And then that drives goals that are like deficits-based goals. And then that leads to approaches that teaches masking. And we know that masking leads to burnout and depression and low self-worth. So it's like such a cycle. Right. All that starts with but what do we look for when we first meet them? Isn't that crazy? I, that's a huge one. That's why um, when I sit in these IEP meetings sometimes with these reports, um, the the information in those reports are going to drive um, essentially the goals that are, are written for the students. And so, um, yeah, and so the observation part is a big piece. Yeah. And yeah. The, but like, not that we have an answer for this, but why <laughs> do you think that, tests just haven't caught up with the neurodiversity movement or is it like like I know a lot goes into making one of these standardized tests obviously like so many kids and just thousands of kids they have to test and do you think they're gonna do it we'll get there someday but you know when it comes to profile um checklist and when it comes to observation checklist a lot of them aren't standardized a lot of them they'll come from a background of, you know, a, a fix it approach. It comes from, well, this person's not doing what those people are doing and we're going to have to try to fix that. Yeah. Um, and that's why we kind of see that language that's, that's yeah. built within it. That's a good point though, because a lot of the pragmatics are like additional checklists. They're not actually part. Right, right, right. Yeah. It's an extension to some and of these. Plug for the DASL. If you guys don't know about Chris's assessment he created because it honestly was such a game changer for us in our clinic because all of a sudden we're looking at completely different things when we are assessing kids. It's just, it's so awesome. Like we've been able to sit down and have these conversations because part of the DASL is having, getting the child to do self-assessment and then talking to the caregivers, talking to the teachers and it's just so cool to have these conversations with kids because it's like teaching them things that they've just never learned about themselves. Right. Yeah. In creating the DASL, um, that was one of the things that was a big piece for me, which was we have to tread lightly when it comes to what we're observing, because we're going to get a lot more information. We're, we're, we're going to get some information from the observations if we're asking the right questions and we're looking at the right things. But a lot of it's really going to come down to getting student input. Like that's what we talked about early on in one of these episodes on intrinsic motivation. Like people want to work on the goals that they want to work on, like to get support. The other part, too, is extending out to the parents, because who spends the most time with the kids? 
or with the child, the parents. And so parent input is going to be huge, but the parents have to be guided with the right questions as well. You know, and that's, that's kind of the big one. I will tell you this much. Um, a lot of those forms that get sent home, um, that are, you know, these checklists where it's like never, sometimes, often, always, almost always, and, you know, things like that. They're like 100 questions. And it's like one of those things where that can be exhausting for a parent because first off, it's looking at a, it's looking at a, at a deficits-based approach. So um, we're just kind of like a hamster on a wheel when we're trying to work on things that we shouldn't be really be working on, you know? Yeah. That's, I love the always, often, sometimes, rarely, never. Yeah, because I've had to fill we those out. We disagree on that, though, because I know you like yes, no. And I'm like, well, sometimes more of the I need options. Right. I, I think for me, it's not even that. So like on the DASL, um, a lot of this stuff is open-ended, qualitative information. Yes, there are some linear scales and things like that, but it's a little bit easier to get um, input when you leave an open-ended question, such as at home, what types of areas, is there any areas that your child may have challenges with when it comes to emotional regulation? Rather than, you know, all of these questions that are sometimes never obvious, because it's like, you're not really getting the details right, that you right, need. Right. You know, so we make it fair for parents. We make it, um, you know, where it's uh, an, a, a, a good practice and a good approach to help our students out. Yeah. And someone said this should be on the IEP, which is a great opportunity for you to tell everyone your free webinar of coming up. Yeah. So two things. Um, yes, Lucy, I'm right there with you on that. The IEPs. Um, all of the stuff that we're talking about right now is the information that should go into the present levels page because the, that's the most important page of the IEP, the present levels. What are the present levels that we're seeing? What are some of the, the learning preferences and the strengths of the students? Because all of that information is exactly what drives the IEP goals and it's what drives the services page, which holds the accommodations and modifications. I know that was a lot of information. So if you want to learn more about that, how we can create a neurodiversity affirming IEP, I have a webinar coming up in a week that you can um, get the link to uh, here um, in the show notes. And it's going to really talk about some of these key areas of redesigning and a remodel of what the IEP should really um, be focusing on. Yeah. And I think your unique thing that you can teach people is a lot of people say, well, if I'm writing an IEP that's neurodiversity affirming, it's not going to be legally defensible. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to cover that. Like how can we get an IEP where everybody feels like a team where there's trust, where the parents are coming in and going, you know what? I feel like we got something that's really going to help my child out with. And then we got therapists walking in with confidence because they're like, you know what? For the first time in my SLP career life, I feel like I've got the right data and this parent is going to just be so happy about that. Like really, I can't stress enough. And we talked about this last week, the importance of the collaboration and trust being established between all team members of the IEP. That 
at the end of the day is how we um, help our kids out the best. Yeah. And I wanted to mention, Clarissa said, unfortunately, schools go by the medical model instead of the social model. And I think what is really cool that Chris is doing is he is essentially teaching you how to take your IEP and make it neurodiversity affirming, but keep it legally defensible. So um, regardless of kind of how the school's model is set up, you're still able to teach therapists how to put data in so that it's reflective of ND affirming practices while also still being everything that an IEP needs to be. I will tell you that I've had just in the past two days, directors of special ed reach out to me. Hey, you know what? I want some of this information because I do want to make a shift. So I'm telling you that the schools that are learning about some of these updates and changes are all about it as well. Yes, there is a fear between some teachers and staff members of if we make the change, am I going to be able to back this up in, in court? Because at the end of the day, nobody wants to go to due process. Everybody wants to support our kids. So if everybody knew that the data and the research by making these changes is how we can create long-term happiness for our students, at the end of the day, I promise you this, parents, this is what they want when their kids graduate high school. They want their kid to be connected with somebody, like have a friend or someone they can go to. They want independence. So maybe that's living in an apartment with a cat or maybe whatever it might be with and having a job that they're enjoying. And, they, and, and, and the biggest piece to this is they want their kid to be happy right? Those are like three of the biggest areas. So what we really want to focus in on is reframing that IEP so we can provide that for the families, for the the student, for the child, for the client, Yeah. Um, you know? So if we really, yeah, so we're going to break it down. <laughs> if we really break it down, if everybody knew that this medical model that was established in 1975, right? This is when the IEPs or kind of first thought of in 1975, if we knew then what we know now, that the things that we create end up causing more stress and more depression in our students, then it would look so much different. So that's why we're doing this. That's why I'm doing this uh, webinar next week. It's going to be great. And um, and so the link, gosh, I don't have it on my website, I I but I have gonna... it on my Instagram and my TikTok. So if you go on to Speech Dude on Instagram or TikTok, the link is there in Got the bio. It. I'm putting it. And then Jesse just put it in the comments as well. Um, you can register there. But um, the other thing too, one last thing, because this um, episode, we're going a, a couple minutes beyond what we usually do. I wanted to mention that the idea is taking big concepts and explaining them in an easier and understandable way. Because when we talk about some of these changes and words that we've been hearing like ableism and the double empathy problem, we actually need to to understand that in, in simple terms and in, in understandable terms for everybody. And so that's kind of what the angle I'm going to come in with some examples, analogies, and some um, autistic people that are going, that I'm going to be highlighting that talk about some of these things um, in an easy to understand way. So and fun ways. Most important. I'm all about that. Like, because when you come home and you're telling me about this webinar and you're like, the IEP was written, created in whatever year. I'm like, <laughs> okay, snooze. But yeah, I know you love it and you do a great job of talking about it in an exciting way. So yep. I know it'll be fun. That's right. Yeah. So, yep, that's it. We're all going to put on our thinking caps. <laughs> And I'm going to be uh, popping off my beer cap. And no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but it'll be a good time. 
Awesome. Um, well, thank you guys for coming and sorry for our delayed entry. Yeah, but we transitioned into some um, content that we hope that you um, were able to absorb a little bit and um, some hopefully new ideas and ways to be thinking through uh, neurodiversity affirming Ray-Bans, like put those things on and we're, <laughs> that's right, new ways of looking at things so we can best help, help our students. Other than that, Jesse, anything else? Thank you guys for coming. Make sure uh, if you get a chance, if you're listening to this on the podcast, please give us a, a solid rating. And if you um, feel like giving us a bad rating, then the name of the podcast is um, Natural Geographic. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you guys, thank you so much for uh, sticking around. We appreciate all the input and you chiming in each week. Until next time, Bye. be awesome and be legendary. If you enjoyed today's episode, hit subscribe, write a review, or share it with a friend. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next time.